0: And that's the ethos of punk rock and like a lot of subcultures from the turn of the century. I wonder if things at the end of the 20th century have a more resonance because of where they are. And it's like the end of our collective memory of pop culture.
1: Yeah, you need RV to, for the underlying data, but you need a meme to get people to care.
0: You're tuned to the R-Cast, where we talk about the blockchain on the r and how your data remains. It's the Rcast, where R-Drive is the topic. Censorship-resistant permanence. Yeah, we got it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Rcast. It's your host, Andrew. This is episode 37 with David Phelps of Joke Race. Uh, some news. PDS CEO Phil Materis will be speaking about the Are We PermaWeb at Collision in Toronto on July 28th. If you can't make it, don't worry. We're going to post the talk online and you'll be able to see it. Also, happy fifth birthday, R-Weave. You may have seen the video we posted about five facts about R-Weave and how it's connected to George Orwell in the book 1984. So check that out. This interview is with David Phelps, who I met at ETH Denver. He was one of our panelists, and he writes a lot about R-Weave, AI, Web3 stuff. He's a great writer, an interesting guy. We clicked because I was wearing my Roger Rabbit jacket, and he was like, hey, Roger Rabbit is the original metaverse. And I was like, oh, shoot. So of course we get into that. So check it out. This is my interview with David Phelps. All right, friends, welcome to the R-Cast. I've got David Phelps. This is a man I met at R-Weave Day in Denver. Influential guy with a lot of cool ideas. What's up, David? Thanks for being on.
1: Not sure about any of that is true, but I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm an influential guy with some terrible <laughs> ideas he might be closer, but we'll see what we'll see what we wrangle out of my mind today.
0: <laughs> You're prolific.
1: Yeah, quantity over quality, any day, any day.
0: So what got you into Are We Even the first place?
1: I, I come from partially a film background and a lot of film history is lost. A lot of major film history is lost. That includes major works that we would love to have seen by von Stroheim and Ophels from the twenties and thirties. It also includes all the footage of the Holocaust which did not survive. There are no films of the Holocaust. And so if you start imagining the world we live in today, where now it's a lot easier to film things, it also needs to be, I think, easier to store them and to be able to preserve them as well. And so I think that was really my initial excitement was thinking, this makes so much sense to have this as part of a data stack. I think the other piece is creating this permissionless system for data storage means that you're censorship resistant it's no longer centralized as well it's also cheaper because you're now putting the actual power of this protocol in the hands of users the same way we do with the rest of web3 which creates much better incentives for being able to actually store and therefore should create a flywheel where this becomes the go-to way of storing material so that was really my initial thought and then it ended up evolving a lot from there I think those were my initial points of excitement with Rweave.
0: Did you use it to store any of your own footage?
1: What I'm building now, which is Joke Race, where we build on-chain contests, that that's a lot of my current excitement is the ability to build social protocols on Rweave. But that's that, what I'm actually looking to do is really build on Rweave so that anybody who is submitting content of any kind to a contest will be storing it there long term. If you look at social protocols and how they were developed in Web2, they have to absorb the cost of data for all their users right and so if you're twitter or facebook you have to spend a lot of money on storing video images text etc for your users right users then participate in it for free but all of those costs of data need to be subsidized immediately by some sort of advertising right and so the trade-off here is that users are giving up their data to these protocols which harvest that data and sell it to advertisers right in order at the very base level, just to pay for that, running that service and paying for the cost of data. Long term, then they can start making a lot of profit off of it, too. But there's immediate upfront cost for building a social protocol in Web 2. And what's exciting when you think about Web 3 and like what you can do when you build on Arweave is that those costs can be passed to the user. And the trade-off here is that the user now is paying the cost of gas fees to upload an image or to upload a video, etc., but they own it and it's there, and they can set royalties over it, right? And they determine its usage. And so that data is no longer being harvested, right, for ads, it actually is a buy-in directly from the users where by putting it up, they are now establishing provenance to that work that will enable them future royalties and rights over it that will let them monetize it as well. And so it's this really exciting thing to think about, like how you can build a social protocol on our weave in Web3 because it's way cheaper. You don't have to actually pay the upfront costs, right, to, for your users' data. Your users will pay it themselves, but your users also get a lot for paying it themselves, which is that they're the ones who are harvesting their own data and able to monetize it too, right? And so that, that's a lot of my current excitement, I would say, for the RV ecosystem is thinking through that new trade-off, which I, I, don't, I, I don't think anybody's written about this and just how powerful I really think that that can be.
0: You talked about the content blockchain in Denver yeah. and you got everyone talking yeah. and everyone keeps talking about that, cool. that expression. Cool. Cool. Let's talk a little bit about what that means to you.
1: Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. This partly comes from my friend, I hope it's okay, I name. him, Ryan Watkins, who, he got me really deep on Rweave, and he and I had a lot of really great talks about, about Rweave as protocol. And so a lot of people, when they think of R-Weave, you know, they think of it as a data storage solution. And so what they think of Rweave as is this way that you can permanently store data of any kind, right? And it's like an updated, economically incentivized kind of torrent service for storing data, what, What people miss in that framework is that it's a protocol that anyone can build on top of by launching smart contracts. And it's like the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum, right? Like Bitcoin, you can just transact. Ethereum, you can have smart contracts, right? Where you're now establishing logic and rights as well and ownership. And the same thing is true for Arweave, right? If we just think of Arweave as data storage, we're thinking about it like Bitcoin. Like it just serves as transactional function and we miss the fact that it's this protocol we're more like ethereum where you can do all these things on top of it. And so when you start thinking about what is a why do I call are we like a content blockchain? What do I mean by that? W- what I mean is that it's like a blockchain in the sense that it is this decentralized protocol that anybody can become a miner and so they can help run and participate in the system to immutably store data, right? But what's really I think crucial about this is thinking right now in blockchains, they're built for one thing, which is financial transactions. The blockchains as we think of them are really good for financial transactions. And that's the logic that dominates. And when you have a financial transaction, you're dealing with something that's very high stakes. But also, maybe more importantly, in terms of how we're thinking about architecture, means that there's dependencies. So if one person's balance goes up, they got some money from somewhere in the ecosystem, someone else's balance went down, right? Like, fundamentally. And so when we talk about state, In blockchains, what we mean is at every block, we have to confirm everyone's holdings basically, right? In some ways, like we have to at least confirm all the new transactions to know that if one person's balance went up, another one went down. And so what that means is the cost of verification in a financial blockchain like we've known is very expensive because you have to be verifying universally constantly, right? And what that means is like, if you wanna use a financial blockchain to upload an image or you know an NFT, you can do it, but it's gonna cost you a fortune because the data is so expensive to verify. And Arweave's major innovation here was saying, what if you don't have these contingencies where one person's balance goes up and another one goes down, so we have to check everyone's at all moments? What if one person uploads a video and another uploads an image? There's no dependency there. One person's image does not rely on someone else's video in another part of the ecosystem. So we can just verify each of those locally Mm. now and then. We can occasionally check that it's there, and that means the cost of verification, right, that everything is there, is way lower because you don't have to be performing it universally and you don't have to be performing it constantly. So once you realize that, that that's the unlock of our weave is it's a way cheaper way to be able to store content while still getting the advantages of a blockchain. And what are those advantages of a blockchain? You get the advantage of immutability, right? Which is what we talk about with permanence. so that becomes really important in a few different dimensions. One is censorship resistance, right? Like I keep imagining this use case where it's like, there's a service where it's a map of the world and there's a timeline and you can click anywhere in the world and you can click any point in time and you will see all of the data that was uploaded at that given moment. And like you imagine yeah. how transformative this is for journalists, right? Like journalists can go back any point in history where people uploaded R we, and they can find all of the content from that moment. So if there's an insurrection or a war, they can start digging through that and they have firsthand archival footage of what that looked like, which is really amazing for history. It's also censorship resistant. The state cannot get involved and cannot... Buckle down on that, right? So that's a great use case. I would say next up, composability, right? If you want people to be able to build off of each other's work in some ways. So I put out like a track, right, as a musician and I want someone else to remix it. And, you know, what I need to know is that my track was the original one that everyone else has used. I need to establish provenance that it was the first one there. If data is getting lost and you don't have permanence, you can't establish provenance, right? This is where Bundler becomes really exciting, because Bundler is really focused on provenance and providing full provenance in a much faster, more verifiable way in the Arweave ecosystem. But once you have provenance, you have composability, because now we can say, okay, I'm putting my work out there, anyone can build on top of it, but I know I was original, and I deserve royalties and rights to that as well. Now you're incentivizing more people to go and upload right their footage to Arweave in order to establish provenance, in order for others to remix it, in order for them to get rights over it as well, too. So it creates this, like, really powerful incentive mechanism once you get that going. And so that's that's the shift in framework from when you think about things as being, like, permanent storage, right, versus, like, content storage. It's the same thing. The permanence is really important because you can't have censorship resistance, you can't have composability without that. And, and then, you know, from there, this becomes the way that I think people will want to establish provenance and upload their rights over images, over video, et cetera, because long term it should be cheaper, but it also ensures the composability and the censorship resistance and the immutability that you get from a traditional blockchain. Those are the things you want for content without needing full verification of state, the way that we've traditionally had it, because you don't need that for a content blockchain. And so that's, yeah, that's why I refer to Arweave as like a content blockchain, because it's taking what's so critical and important about blockchains, permissionlessness, composability, sovereignty, immutability, and applying it to content in a way that is actually scalable for content in a way it's not in any traditional chain.
0: And for that reason, that's why it will be around in hundreds of years, because we'll be creating more data, we'll be telling more stories, we'll be documenting our experience here.
1: Yeah, and the scalability. And that's the key thing, too, which is like you get state float in traditional financial blockchains. The more people are participating, the more transactions you have to verify, the more expensive it is to verify everyone, right? (laughs) And so every blockchain runs into this problem where the more successful they are, the more they hinder their own growth because it gets more and more expensive to verify. And reef doesn't really have this kind of, reef is really special because it's just verifying locally without these kind of universal dependencies and contingencies.
0: That's what's up. I liked your article on context disruption and the idea that like Mm. the people who are At the zeitgeist of the culture are the rebels, but also the elite, right? Like that, you made that point. You talk a lot about anti-fragility in that article.
1: Yeah, so anti-fragility is that, that idea by Talibre, whatever his name is. And the idea is that there, if I remember this correctly, there are certain things where volatility actually in some ways is the basis for their own stability. So the more volatile things are, the better these things perform, if that makes sense. They're anti-fragile, like they thrive off of volatility and that's when they do really well. And so when things are stable, they actually do a lot less. Well, that's a lot harder for them. And yeah, anti-fragility is this idea where you have these kind of figures in pop culture where every time a scandal happens and you think they're gonna be brought down, it actually makes them stronger because actually that scandal is, that's what empowers them. So Trump is like a great example of this kind of anti-fragility where every single time liberals get excited that there's a new crisis is going to take him down. It actually turns out to be a massive opportunity for him. that He wields and then builds more support for his base and people people even love him for it. And so that's anti fragility in in a nutshell,
0: the attention economy is monetized in a different way, because it's not monetized by consolidated power, it's monetized by the protocol and layer two things that like Mm. reference how things are important. So I was just wondering, do you feel like our weave is a protocol that is conducive to anti-fragility? I think it's important
1: for people to be able to trust the economic assumptions of our I know lots of people who don't and they're convinced that something will go wrong and this is probabilistic and it won't work. And until, the thing is, until every piece of content is guaranteed, if even one piece of content isn't guaranteed, then you're gonna lose out on a lot of potential users, right? Because people need that full guarantee. And so that's lendiness. Like the m- longer that our is around and people see that this content actually does survive, the more they're going to have faith in it and trust in it for sure. Now, in terms of what content succeeds, yeah, I do think there's a way where, yeah, any blockchain does have to be anti fragile in the sense that you are, you're assuming worst case scenarios and those should be at the very least non disruptive of what you're building, but potentially even supporting it. And you're right, like the attention economy means that, like, All news is good news, right? This isn't always the case, but to a great degree, when there's some scandal that emerges, that is usually going to be good for whoever is covered by it. Now, not universally, lots of people hate them for it, but lots of others will like them too. And this is just a lesson of the internet, which is no one is universally beloved. And so the way to succeed online is to have half the people hate you and the other half love you. Because as long as the people who are hate you are vehement and vocal about it, they're drawing attention to you for that other half to come and find you and love you. And that's, that's, I think the trade-off that a lot of figures like Musk or Trump, Kanye have made in the past. There's points where if you are trying to get mainstream success with a major brand like Adidas, it can backfire. (laughs) But like a lot of times being able to be hated, Andrew Tate, right? be able to be really hated by one group is really strong for you to be able to be loved by another aoc another example and yeah in 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 terms of we i do think like we're going to we're going to be witnessing just an explosion of content ai is going to be producing tons and tons of content as well it's pretty realistic i think to think that we'll probably have 100 times as much content in the next 10 years as we've had in the past 10 years and it needs to be stored somewhere and so in terms of who gets attention how does it get attention what's out there Arweave is not a curatorial mechanism, but it is a really important mechanism where people start uploading and being able to have verifiable ways of proving that they were the original creator, especially in the world of AI, and monetize from the attention on them.
0: You've been tweeting about AI. Are you optimistic about it? And how can it work well with Arweave?
1: I'm pretty optimistic <laughs> about AI, and I want to point out that there is a massive vertical here that OpenAI does not want to touch, which is porn, which has always been a really, really good tech. Porn's always been at the vanguard of technology over and over again, because no one else wants to touch it. The same way that like drugs is what built Bitcoin, right? To Silk Road. Finding those use cases that no one else wants to touch and proving that you can actually build for them is powerful. I I personally think AI porn on RV will be a massive use (laughs) case. In 1950s, if you want to make a 90-minute movie, it probably took you three or four months minimum to make a 90-minute movie, just to shoot all of that and edit it on film by 2000 2005 if you want to make a 90 minute movie you could do it digitally and you can make a 90 minute movie in 90 minutes right just by digital so you start having this explosion of content because it's so much easier to make it and it also cuts down the time of making when you can do stuff digitally with ai it's like you can make a 90 minute movie in one minute (laughs) because you can just type out a prompt and then ai can generate a 90 minute movie off of that and so you start thinking about what that does for data right it's every minute We're able to produce 90 minutes worth of one person for every person's minute. They're able to produce 90 minutes of content. Think how explosive that is (laughs) for the creation of content. And so then the question is, how do you curate it? And that's a lot of what I think I'm spending my time with Joke Race is thinking about like curatorial mechanisms that we can use for people to determine what they actually want to look at and what deserves attention. But yeah, there's going to be an explosion of all of this that needs to go somewhere and needs to be stored somewhere. And if people want to establish provenance and want others to be able to access it in a censorship-resistant way. Let's talk about Joke Race. Yeah, so Joke Race is a decision-making platform. So it's contests for communities to be able to make, execute, and reward decisions. And the way it works is you create a contest, you put a prompt out, people can respond to that prompt people can vote on their favorite responses, winners can win rewards, and that's it. And within that framework, you can decide who gets to submit, you can decide who gets to vote, right? And so we were built in EVM, so we're connected to really all the EVM compatible chains. When you deploy a contest, you're deploying a smart contract to that chain. So it's no code smart contract deployment. And it means you can connect to any chain, throw one of these contests, add rewards for it, and you can do anything from hackathons, to grants, to bounties, to DAO governance, right? To prediction markets, to games, to nominating your favorite community of the month, to going to your users and saying, what features do you want us to build? Let's create a list. You can create a decentralized product hunt, et cetera. So there's tons of different fun use cases. We're going to be launching the V3 next month in July. That'll really be the kind of crowning glory that we've been working towards for a long time. And are very excited for that. But yeah, I think about this as a curatorial mechanism, fundamentally, right? It's a way to curate And say, what is valuable to our community? And when you come up with that list, you're basically coming up with a list of your own values for what matters to you as a community, too. And you can almost think about every vote as an attestation, right? It's an attestation on an entry to say, this provided value to our community. And so you build up this really powerful reputation there as well. Now where this ties into Arweave is thinking like, what about a film festival? What would a film festival look like? Or an essay contest or photography contest? Or Mm -hmm. what if people want to generate their own NFTs? Now they're going to be submitting media, right? And the way we currently have it set up is like, you just have to provide a link to your media and then we'll render it. But that's all Web2. What we'd like to do, right, is be able to build a way where that media can actually be stored on a Web3 native way Arweave. And that way, anyone who's uploading that media, no matter what happens, they've proven provenance and they've proven ownership over that. And so when they're uploading it to the contest, they're storing it on our weave and establishing their ownership over that. So that anyone who participates in that contest and sees it, votes on it, usually it, interacts with it, et cetera, the contests are actually drawing attention to these different pieces of media that, that, that should be on our weave.
0: You'll have all this record of people maybe who didn't win. Maybe they'll yep. become famous in 10 years and they'll be like, oh, look, this person did this in 2000-whatever.
1: And it gets really exciting because yeah, you didn't win, but maybe there was a jury member who voted for you where they gave 100% of their votes and you got more passionate response than anyone else did. Maybe some jury members consistently voted for all the same things. They voted for the same entries. These all lost, but now you see there's an alignment, like their tastes are very aligned with yours. You should go form a sub community somewhere right? And so you can start, or maybe you tend to vote the same way someone else tends to vote, or your entry tends to receive votes from the same people that, that others receive. You can you start building up these social graphs that are really powerful to be able to establish, okay, these are meaningful relationships that people could develop as well, right? And then you start thinking, if anybody got any vote from this contest, from a jury member, that shows they created something legitimate in some ways. Someone found it legitimate, right, from the jury. That's now really powerful to say, This is data about who our actual users are. So you imagine airdrops in the future. What are they going to be based on? What reputational data in terms of who you want to decentralize your token to do you want to use? This is not something that can get botted, right? This is a qualitative assessment about the actual value someone has provided to a community as attested to by the boat as well. And yeah, I almost think about it like it's almost like the rewards are like a Trojan horse to get people to participate but what you're really doing is building out that long-term value to say, I created this thing. This was mine. This is how it was originally perceived. These are the people who supported it. These are my fans who I want to find and I want to work with yeah. and build. And then, yeah, if someone remixes this or sees it, I'm going to have rights to that. And I think we'll see that happen a lot. But the winner long-term actually won't have as much value as the eighth or ninth places in a lot of these contests.
0: If you have a thousand fans who support everything you do on Kickstarter... It's better than having a hit yeah. on Universal than getting dropped because they're with
1: totally, you. Yeah. totally. Especially when you can monetize effectively from your fans, it's the super fans who are willing to pay. And like, I do think Web three is yeah, Web two is going to be much better for Rihanna right now, but Web three might be better, a lot better for a jazz musician. Yeah, or technical DJ right who wants their tracks remixed. That's where it can become really powerful.
0: So there's a DAO element to that. If I'm understanding you yep. right.
1: Yeah, I think we're rethinking what a DAO is as well. The term I've been using is modular community. And the idea is that you don't need a token. In fact, with our V3, it'll be tokenless voting. It'll be an allow list based off of any criteria you've met that maps to an on-chain address. And so you can say, hey, anybody gets to participate in this contest who's liked me on Twitter or whose tweets I've liked on Twitter. And as long as you have an API that connects that data to the actual on-chain address, you can use services like Guild for this, right? Now you're creating a one-time community based on behaviors that people have in common, and so that for me is what's really powerful about thinking about what a DAO could be. Is it's not based on a bunch of people who bought a token; it's based on people who share these fundamental behaviors with each other.
0: And it goes back to the most valuable asset, which is time, and it's the attention economy, like we mentioned. Like totally, that's totally. I wanted to talk about another DAO, so, a, a, yeah. a decentralized autonomous organization of tunes. Fought for justice. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you, yeah. They came together. They came together. Yeah.
0: I was wearing my Roger Rabbit jacket at, uh, in Denver. And you were like, yeah. Toontown is the ri- Roger Rabbit's the original metaverse.
1: Who turned Roger Rabbit? It was my favorite movie as a kid. And I would rewatch it endlessly over and over. And so I was someone who grew up on old cartoons. And so I've spent a lot of time watching like old Looney Tunes cartoons and old Disney cartoons. And and Hoover and Roger Rabbit right takes place in 1940s Los Angeles, which is in the process of being raised. And there's this town, which of course represents the unreputable part of town that is being raised by the good upstanding citizens of gentrifying Los Angeles. And that's Toontown. And of course, Toontown contains those ruffians who are outlaws banished from the good propriety of nice society in Los Angeles, by which I mean cartoons. And so these cartoons are made up of Betty Boop and Black and White, as well as so Fletcher Brothers cartoons and Looney uh, Looney Tunes and Disney cartoons, right? Donald Duck gets into this incredible dueling piano fight with Daffy Duck. You get the two ducks together. And, and then a the human enters into this world, which is Bob Hoskins as a detective. And so as a kid, I was just so enamored with this vision, not only of real life intersecting with cartoons, but all the different cartoon universes intersecting with each other. And it was like IP free for all, right? (laughs) For them to have pulled off this movie and gotten the IP for all of it is like still one of the great miracles of like modern Hollywood. But it's what gets really exciting when you start thinking about the metaverse and permissionless creation, where you can now have all of these different worlds interacting with each other and what they can look like when they start to collide as well. And yeah, I do think a lot of times when I think about what are my values for open IP, letting anyone create derivatives, letting anyone create work, who did Roger Rabbit is really just fan fiction, you know, of these cartoons that hadn't existed even in 50 years or 30 years by the time that it was made and were brought back to life by fans. the purposes of this and it's a really just beautiful piece of fan fiction and shows the power of what happens when you get rid of ip and have incredible ability for anyone to create derivatives (laughs) and intersecting roles as well
0: (laughs) there's always every few years i see the viral tweet they're like does anime exist in the roger rabbit universe what would that be like yeah and i was thinking about one of the things that's special about that is their tunes they're aware that they're cartoons
1: second-class citizens in los angeles
0: people are prejudiced against them and something like are we (laughs) would store Marvin Acme's will.
1: I'm not an invisible ink, although I guess that was the original encryption.
0: That's funny. But the other thing I love about that movie is that having joy and having passion motivates everyone. Yeah. And like in this blockchain yeah. world, having a passion and bringing people's attention to the things you care about, that's something I took from Roger. And I love his line that a laugh is the most powerful weapon we have, right?
1: That's the movie ends, yeah, they use laughter to win.
0: Okay, so I think it's this idea, going back to the context disruption, the idea of being the rebel and being an elite, right? Because Roger, I think the way he yep. wins is he's rebellious, he's new, people hadn't seen him in the 80s, but he's also like friends with Mickey Mouse and he's in this world. So yeah, he's, it's a context disruption in a way.
1: The scarcest commodity is time in the attention economy. And so when people need to draw attention as much as possible, that trade-off, of yeah, I'm gonna make myself hated by 50% of society, but loved by the other 50%. It's not only worth it to say I'm gonna get more passion each way, it's worth it because actually the people who hate you are doing your working campaigning for you. Right. Because they are selling you to all the people who will then love you. Right. And so like that's it's not even a trade-off because you're building off of the people who hate you just as much as the people who love you to be your campaigners. And I think that's very much a product of the attention economy mm. to get to that point. I think it's also a product of the internet where the mainstream has collapsed. There, there are really, the mainstream is just over the past 30 years has totally collapsed into subcultures because when we are online, we're connected to other people based on our algorithm. And that totally changes things, right? Where it's yeah. like commonalities between people are not even based as much on generation anymore as they are on shared taste and a subculture that you find online which can sometimes span different generations as well. And so that's that that's this really interesting phenomenon of what happens when it's better to embrace a subculture than to embrace the mainstream. And I think that's really propels a lot of anti fragility.
0: And that's the ethos of punk rock and like a lot of subcultures from the turn of the century. I wonder if things at the end of the 20th century have a more resonance because of where they are. And it's like the end of our collective memory of pop culture.
1: Yeah, you need R V to for the underlying data, but you need a meme to get people to care.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's tight. Dude, wait, is there there anything else you wanted to say about that movie?
1: Yeah, I think Zemeckis, the director, had this great kind of string of films about revisionist history from 80s to 90s. And his obsession was making all these films about revisionist history, often based on the idea of what are the lies we have to tell ourselves to keep ourselves going? And what are the lies we have to tell ourselves about culture in order to... Provide a foundational unity for society to continue operating, and so those lies are can be quite cool, right? It's like it, there's incest at the heart of Back to the Future, and then <laughs> Forrest Gump, which is probably his most cynical film. It's just a series of lies where it continually misreads history deliberately throughout the film for the sake of sentimentality. You have Imagine by John Lennon is somehow in that movie turned into an anti-communist song when it was actually a pro-communist song, and so. He's obsessed with this way that you need to tell lies about reality and make them sappy in order for them to become palatable to an audience. But I think with Roger Rabbit, he, he goes the furthest with this, which is the, this movie is based on them getting rid of cartoons so they can keep and trying to hide the truth, which is that the, there's actually cartoons among us and we have to hide that from ourselves in order to preserve polite society. But of course, that's based on this lie that there are cartoons at all when we know there aren't. And so it's this really touching movie to imagine what would it be like if we could live in a world of our imagination and how would you map that and what would it look like in the cultural imagination? There's very few other works I think that have really gone there. Like I'd say Imagination Land, the South Park three-part series mm. does something similar to that, but really imagining like what does it look like to inhabit the cultural imagination and to move around with it freely is, Yeah. Uh, just it, it's a really incredibly beautiful sad touching thing because we can't do it
0: <laughs> yeah we can't do it and everything is it's this idea of what is reality right yeah. being online and, and the friendships we form and communication sometimes has more depth than the people we like talk to in person every day
1: cartoons in that movie will be the ai bots of our world where we'll be talking to ai bots all the time and everyone will be like oh they're like cartoons they're not real or we'll be like actually they're funnier and they bring us more joy and we have more meaningful relationships with them. So who are you to say <laughs> that they're not human?
0: <laughs> and they understand us more, too, because they know
1: our... And they understand us more.
0: I was wondering if there was one piece of data you'd want to keep forever in store.
1: I'm going to go with the Walter Benjamin's Arcades project. So Walter Benjamin, great philosopher in the 20th century... That untimely end. World War II as a Jew trying to escape. Worked over the course of his life on something called the Arcades Project, and the Arcades Project was an archive of different pieces of text that he had collected from different sources, and they're just clippings, basically, right? Of different things he'd read and found. So almost like a scrapbook. But then what he decided he wanted to do was to try to organize it by theme. It's almost a dictionary of his interests, and so it's organized in this way where each chapter is a different interest, like gambling. And a lot of Benjamin's concern was with the flaneurs and this new society of urbanization where people are now living among anonymous strangers for the first time in history and figuring out how to conceive of themselves as these sensual, nightlife, anonymous creatures, all of which goes against what how humans have always lived before and thinking, like, what is this world we've created? What is it like to live in a manufactured reality in some ways? And so that's a lot of the concern of Arcade's project, but it becomes exciting because a lot of times when you're reading these clippings, the question isn't, what does the clipping say? The question is, how does this connect to the one next to it? What does Ben you mean thinking that he put these two things next to each other? And so, it, and then you'll get to points where you'll be like, oh, this thing later in the book reminds me of this thing earlier in the book. There's these other connections that you start forming that weren't even there just by virtue of having this archive. And so I think It's a really exciting text because there's no right way to read it. It is almost decentralized. There's no center to it. There's no story. You flip to an open page and you try to figure out the connections. And the work of reading and understanding it is your projection onto it. And so in that way, Arcade's Project is really like the first internet text because everything is a link. What you're really looking at is like, how does this thing link to something else? And you're reading this almost like Wikipedia in which you're not sure what, kind of like Roger Rabbit, you don't know what's fact and fiction. You don't know what is from a novel versus what is from a memoir, it's all even in this collage. And so it flattens everything and it creates this kind of hyperlink environment for works to all connect each other in archiving a lot of forgotten culture and bringing it to the fore. And so I think for me, that would be the text to to put up because when we think about ARRIV and how it's constructed as a torrent, uh, like a next generation torrent in a way, right? Yeah. Of these different files that can all connect to each other. As and archive them and archive things that some are monumental and some are banal right next to each other and think about like, how are we archiving these things in ways that can link together? That was kind of Benjamin's project initially. And so I think it would be poignant too. For that to be the work that i would upload to tell you.
0: that's cool that's that's very original and unique and telling about our weave itself is it like a book or how did he preserve it it's a book okay
1: it's a book yeah it was preserved it was never finished never could be finished yeah. because it's just an ongoing project right it's a process but yeah you can i think buy it on amazon it's an amazing book to have around and just to flip open to to read a page or two
0: is it in english or is what language is yeah it?
1: there's an english it was originally, he was German. Right. And I think a lot of it was in French also that he was taking in. But yeah, there's an English translation.
0: That's dope. David, thank you for talking to us today and all your perspective and going down all these rabbit holes. I think it's tight that you're trying to make sense of this confusing time.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited by the work Bundler is doing. I think on Provenance, Like that, that for me is going to be the big missing piece of incentivizing people to really be using the RVV ecosystem. So shout out there. Other than that, yeah, that, that's the only plug like I'll throw really excited about what we're doing in this space.
0: That's what's up. Thank you, David. That's tight.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks, David. We'll be back in two weeks. If you have any guests you recommend for the Rcast, please ask them to hit me up. My email is andrew at r.io. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.